Welcome, everyone, to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Dude, I'm doing absolutely fantastic. We just had an awesome interview with Alex Gladstein, the head of strategy at the Human Rights Foundation, a fantastic Bitcoiner and freedom advocate. Before we get into the interview, I want to tell you about our fantastic sponsor, the Haven Privacy Application. Like Alex Gladstein, Haven is really focused on your privacy, on your sovereignty, and enabling you to interact with P2P commerce on a private level to the max degree. Uh, Haven stores all of your data locally on your device and only allows for cryptocurrency usage. So you never have to worry about any middlemen in the entire process of purchasing goods worldwide. I'm a huge fan of Haven. You can use it to turn some of the stuff in your house that you don't need into priceless and eternal Satoshis. Um, I am personally going to be putting on a signed programming Bitcoin book with a leather bound by Jimmy Song on the Haven marketplace just to try it out and to turn it into some Satoshis. Uh, I bought the book like a year and a half ago, have not read it, don't even know how to program. So figured I'd rather have the stats now. And if I ever want to read it later, I can pick it up later. So some lucky person out there is about to buy a signed programming Bitcoin book. Yeah, it was pretty cool buying something without having to like log in and just by sending Bitcoin to the wallet. Uh, and it's also super appropriate because this episode with Alex Glassing is all about privacy. Uh, and, and that's what Haven is for. It's a privacy focused uh, marketplace Technically, I guess it's peer-to-peer too, um, at least with all the data and data transfers all end-to-end uh, encrypted with peer-to-peer communication. So that's pretty dope. And so as we t- keep on being privacy-focused, let's turn to our interview with uh, Alex Gladstein. All right, everyone. I'm super excited to bring you guys Alex Gladstein. Alex Gladstein is the, you're the head of strategy at the Human Rights Foundation. That, that's correct, Alex, right? That's right. I've actually met Alex and had the pleasure to hear him speak several times now. And, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of what he's doing and how you have emerged kind of in the cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin space and your, your angle on trying to educate and teach people about why Bitcoin is important. Um, would love to kind of get, you know, your basic intro here. Alex, and then uh, we can kind of jump into, you know, where you see cryptocurrency fitting into human rights. Sure. So as you said, I head strategy at the Human Rights Foundation. I've been working there since 2007. And my job is to, in line with the mission of HRF, to help protect and promote individual rights and civil liberties uh, of people who are living under authoritarian governments around the world. So unfortunately, that's a lot of people. That's about 4 billion people living in 95 some odd countries who don't enjoy the same, let's say, political uh, luxuries we might have in a country like the United States. For example, the ability to sue a government, to file a freedom of information request, to be tried in a court with an independent judiciary, the ability to participate in a free and fair election, to determine, you know, a political representative that will carry out your wishes at the national level, the ability to write an op-ed in the newspaper, the ability to have a peaceful protest, the ability to speak freely in a public space without being afraid. These are all things that I think people in um, maybe in Europe and, and maybe places like Japan, Chile, United States have fought very hard to win, perhaps sometimes take for granted, but certainly are not natural in terms of like the way things are normally uh, on this planet. Um, those are 
exceptions. Uh, the majority of people live under some sort of authoritarian rule where those things are not enjoyed. And HRF seeks to assist people living under these countries, rather living under these governments uh, with different kinds of campaigns and trying to show them how they can use tools to empower what they're doing. We try to help them tell their stories at our events like the Oslo Freedom Forum series. We do a lot of like on the ground um, kind of direct advocacy and support for them through programs like the Flash Drives for Freedom initiative, which, which, which helps smuggle flash drives into North Korea, for example. So we, we kind of have a mix of, um, you know, on the ground, direct advocacy, public relations and public education about, you know, why dictatorship is bad for humans, um, and also like a legal uh, team where we take people's cases, you know, we take political prisoner cases. And with that as a background, I've, I've really dug in on the technology and human rights angle the last three, four years, especially with regard to both how technology is a necessary tool to protect individuals and dissidents and activists and journalists, but also how it's being used by governments to oppress us, whether it be big data analysis, AI, whether it be, quote unquote, like euphemistic things like smart cities, which are really surveillance cities, that sort of thing. And I've developed a massive appreciation and understanding of uh, how tools like, for, for example, encrypted messaging or decentralized money, uh, so like, let's say, Signal or Bitcoin, are, are really, really important um, for people and will be increasingly important as more and more people understand like what kind of liberties those things afford them. Alex, uh, everyone kind of has their uh, their aha moment, I would say, when it comes to Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. I, I would g take a gander that yours has to do with privacy. Do you re remember your Bitcoin aha moment? Well, actually, mine was kind of forced. I mean, I was aware of Bitcoin for a while. I was just looking the other day. Someone pitched me in 2013. Like they were like, hey, can we like use Bitcoin to send money into Ukraine, which was obviously, as you know, about to go under a very difficult time, which culminated in uh, an uprising um, against the Russian backed uh, government. Um, but I kind of wasn't, you know, I looked at it and I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I had a lot of other opportunities, but didn't didn't really start to earnestly look at the connection between Bitcoin and human rights until late 2016, when this investor friend of ours named Bill Tai was like, hey, I'm on the board of Bitfury, the mining company. Maybe maybe we got maybe we can collaborate. So a few months later, we we had our first event under HRF auspices to connect people in the Bitcoin community to, to human rights activists in our network. And it's kind of gone from there. And my interest stemmed from the fact that, like, starting around that time, I started to get asked to, like, do things at cryptocurrency events and blockchain uh, events. And I, I didn't really have a, a good understanding of it. And I, I wanted to. So I started to learn more. I mean, my aha, the, the, I don't I think it's tough to have like a penny drop moment with something like Bitcoin. It's so many it's so multi-layered. But probably I, I started to really grasp how momentous it was through through just reading and, and listening to uh Andreas Antonopoulos, I think he's got a, a really good way of explaining uh, what, why it's so important. Um, and then starting to see people living under authoritarian regimes use Bitcoin was, was really interesting. Um, and that's kind of tr continues to drive my interest to this point. Alex, I, I've listened to a couple uh, NPR podcasts about uh, what they call the Chinese Panopticon, and you know, privacy in China is is a huge issue that's causing you know a bunch a whole bunch of strife. Most recently, noted in the in the whole Hong Kong protests. However, in the, in the interest of of making this an actual a little bit of a debate, uh, I'd like to propose that uh, mm -hmm. privacy in a, a free country like America. Uh, is actually mm -hmm. hindering uh, uh, the pr uh, innovation and progress of the United States uh, because 
we are more privacy focused in the, the United States. Uh, we actually hide uh, data going to the big tech companies. And as a result, they can't produce good, uh, better products. Uh, because we are privacy focused, they have less information to improve their products. And so I'd like to, for you to present an argument that refutes this. Like why, why if I'm interested in uh, getting better products, uh, would I, should I still be concerned about my data and my privacy? So I think there's like trade-offs to any, in, in any arrangement, in any system. I, I tend to look at it from a political science point of view. So we look at the age-old debate between democracy and dictatorship, right? You can actually make a lot of good arguments for dictatorship and tyranny, um, and many people try to, and many people continue to do so, based on the fact that citizens don't have rights, so therefore the people in charge can do whatever they want. This is, this is clearly like... <laughs> the, the number one argument for dictatorship or, or tyranny. Well, the Chinese government can act super fast and it can like destroy a whole bunch of the environment without asking the people who live there and build a dam. Or, or it can just completely come into a neighborhood and force everybody to leave and rebuild the buildings really quickly. Or it can build like a super high speed rail, you know, without having proper like, you know, what we would call, like, let's say, consumer protection laws, things like that. So, so they can like act really fast and build really fast, you know, without the hindrance of, of let's say like uh, checks and balances and, 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 and democratic um, safeguards. So that's, that's the big pro. It's sort of like, sort of like the transactions per second thing in the blockchain world, right? They can do way more transactions per second than a decentralized system. However, um, if you just look at societies around the world, I think long-term, um, democracies are, are better. Um, and I, I mean, liberal democracies, ones that have separation of powers and, and that protect free expression and, and rights of the minority. But whether you care about prosperity, patent rates, innovation, w welfare, like li literacy rates, uh, maternal health rates, um, you know, protecting the environment, or even something like war and peace, um, and then preventing war, democracies are just better for humans. So democracies, you just, just take a look at the top 20 freest countries and then the worst 20 dictatorships. Okay, so we're taking like, that's how you can sort of really start to see that this isn't just a correlation. This is like causal. So you take a look at like Norway, Japan, Costa Rica, and like Estonia or something like that. And then you would take a look at like Belarus, Cuba, North Korea, and like Uzbekistan. You would just take like a couple of the countries that are the most free and then a couple of the countries that are the least free. And wh whether, whether you care about, again, like prosperity metrics, like patent rates and like science and math and pushing forward there, or whether you care about like, like more kind of social justice, kind of like developmental stuff, like, 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 like how long do people live and like, you know, what are the chances someone dies in childbirth or what are what you know, can kids read or is their education or like, is this government going to be belligerent? Like, is it going to go attack another government? The, the, the evidence is just so, so clear that you want to have a free and open society. So while there is that like, like temporary trade-off that like you get as a dictator or as a tyrant, as a tyrant that you can just do stuff faster uh, over time, um, uh, the evidence is super, super clear that like, societies are just more productive, healthier, and better if they're open and free. And I, I don't think that the new kind of technology here changes that very much. I mean, what you're saying is that like, 
governments like China are going to be able to innovate more rapidly in certain technological areas that strip our privacy, I I would say that that eventually is going to be self-defeating. That's going to be a fragile system that people are going to rise up and shatter at some point. If you have rather technology that actually protects individual rights and protects people's ability to own their money and control their money or and information, for example, that's going to be a much more durable system over time, which is going to lead to a, a lot more authentic, long-lasting uh, prosperity and success. I mean, we only we we only we, we so many historical examples, but I mean, the Soviet Union is a good one. I mean, they made all those trade-offs that you talk about, and they were doing rather remarkable things. In some of these areas, for example, going, you know, their space program, et cetera. But all these things were like made with a massive trade off where they just like violated people's human, human rights at, at sort of every level. And that thing came, came crumbling down. And it was fairly unexpected, actually, if you go back and look at, like, for example, the media around when that, that regime fell. You could look at the same thing in the Arab world with, with the protests in Tunisia or what is happening now in Hong Kong. I mean, all these things are like unpredictable. No one, no one knows when these big political shifts are going to happen. The thing is, though, democracies are much harder to kill. Um, they're just much more durable. And, and, I, and I guess to, to, to debate your point, I, I, I think that democracies that are built and, and that pr- produce technology that protects citizens' rights are going to long term um, be much more wealthy and successful and innovative. Alex, I've been following the Hong Kong issue really closely and tweeting about it a lot. I'm kind of curious to get your your kind of analysis on what is happening in Hong Kong and how you see the protesters utilizing cash and other privacy-preserving technology there. Yeah, so this is like a good example of why privacy is important and why we risk losing it in the future and how that relates to like the potential freedom of the average human being on this planet. So in Hong Kong, TLDR, this was a a, a British territory, which was ceded by the British to the Chinese over a 50-year period of time, right? So we're kind of in that transition time, and and the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing is licking its chops with uh, to the day when it can sort of control Hong Kong, right? There's like a lot of like nationalistic pride reasons for this. There's, There's geopolitical reasons for this. There's financial reasons for this. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this, but Xi Jinping has been a ruler in, in China that, that is very excited to do these like big nationalistic projects and, and kind of get 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 people excited about how great China is. Right. In what may have been a misstep, you know, it seems clear that like the pro-China forces, you know, encouraged the leadership of Hong Kong, which was still sort of sort of democratic. Right. I mean, maybe not not fully, but there were our elections where, you know, Hong Kong, Hong Kongers elect no representatives, that the Chinese forces tried to force through this like edit to a law that would um, allow the Chinese government to just extradite anybody from within Hong Kong without like going through a legal procedure in Hong Kong. So the reason why this is really bad is like a lot of like powerful, like, you know, elite Chinese people go to Hong Kong as, as an alternative to China. A lot of famous critics of, of China go to Hong Kong and the Chinese government, if this had passed, would just get the ability to just take anybody from Hong Kong, and bring them to China and put them in a black site or a prison camp or, or God knows what, put them on a show trial. So this would be like a really, really fatal blow to Hong Kong's sovereignty. And this is why everybody got really angry in Hong Kong and started marching. And it has now morphed into like a lot more than just this particular bill, this anti-extradition bill. Uh, in fact, today, um, many just a couple hours ago, Carrie Lam, the 
head of the you know so-called Hong Kong parliamentary uh, democracy, conceded that they, they were were not going to pursue this bill. So like the initial aims of the protesters seem to have been met, and it's actually pretty incredible that. The people of Hong Kong this summer rose up in the millions, literally like 25 percent of the population has marched um, on the streets and they have actually won that first point. But 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 now it's such a it's such a bigger point. It's a much more about sovereignty from China and human rights and dignity and things like that. So so these protests will continue um, and this this will continue to simmer, basically, in order to do that, like in order to force Carrie Lam and the Hong Kong government to concede and in order to actually kind of score this kind of partial victory against the world's largest dictatorship, the people of Hong Kong needed privacy, right? So when they protested, they did not want to be tracked and surveilled for obvious reasons. I mean, we just saw, for example, like the CEO of Cathay Pacific was forced to like give a giant list of people who had been his, his employees who had been involved in the protest. And he's such a badass that he was just like, yeah, here's my list. And he submitted a name with just his name on it. I just thought that was incredible. And he resigned. You had all these companies in Hong Kong, which were pressured to be like giving the names of the, or their employees who were protesting to the authorities for like punishment and persecution. So it was, it's really, really important for when people protest in Hong Kong, that they not that, that they kind of assume this like secondary identity. It's really fascinating. There's some really good writing about it, but people in Hong Kong will be going about their normal day to day. Like there's not a protest every day. It's like, like most of the time this summer, there has been not, no protest. It's like the isolated incidents where people call for protests. And you'll be like at a coffee shop and you'll see somebody and you'll be like, huh, like I saw that person at a protest. And, and you'll kind of have this kind of like mutual recognition moment and like maybe like do the equivalent of kind of like a high five and then you'll like keep going. So it's weird. People are living two lives in Hong Kong right now. But in order to live that second life and effectively protest and do what they've done, which culminated in a partial victory today, they needed to be private. So, yeah, I mean, obvious basic stuff like face masks to, to fluster uh, surveillance cameras, but also like the use of cash, paper money to purchase subway tickets so that their geolocation and their, their whereabouts weren't being tracked uh, or trackable by the government very, very important. People were using laser pointers to confuse surveillance cameras. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all about nonviolence, but, you know, it, it was interesting to observe some protesters even start to start to sort of take down and destroy some of these kind of surveillance towers, which were which were kind of feeding the Communist Party with information about who was protesting. So there were a lot of really interesting tactics that protesters have taken. Um, but generally speaking, like when you go out to protest, you, tr you try to hide your, your your public face. You don't want like your boss to know that you're protesting. So privacy has been an essential element of the Hong Kong people holding their government accountable, uh, or at least trying to. And if we don't have that in the future, like we won't be able to do that. Right. So Privacy is an absolutely critical element of a free society. I think the, the concept of multiple identities is really, really interesting. And in the real world, it seems like you can really only have two identities. You can have the identity that the government uh, bestows upon you with their you know, official document of who you are, either your driver's license or your passport. And then there's like, the actual identity that, that you have outside of that, which is who you are as a person, like your soul of sorts. Uh, and in Ethereum, there's been a bunch of discussions about like, what does it mean to have multiple identities? And uh, 
I think it was Andrew Keyes who said that every individual should be uh, empowered to have any sort, any number of identities that they want to bestow upon themselves so they can have like their professional identity, their, their private black market drug buying on the internet identity, their, uh, their gamer identity, and then, you know, uh, and one identity per hobby, perhaps. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious, Alex, have you been following the world of identity management and privacy in Ethereum? I mean, a little bit. I, I would say, generally speaking, the identity piece is really important, although I'd probably have like a slightly different take um, than, than some people in the Ethereum community. I, I think that, again, like the ability to be anonymous or the ability to have, quote unquote, different identities is essential for a free society. Now, what probably I think off base is this idea that like we want to put identity in a blockchain. Like, I, I only see that being abused either by a corporation or by government. A lot of the early hype around blockchain was like, oh, we're going to put we're going to put all these refugees on the blockchain like, and make it easier for them to buy food or something like that. I mean, you, you can't make this up. I mean, it, it's like it was like a closed system run by some like a nonprofit or foundation, which easily, easily could have abused that power to you know, monitor or, or censor the abilities of those people. And, and, you know, from that perspective, identity, again, as you said, is something that sort of an authority bestows upon you. I'm actually really excited to get away from this, like, we have these, like, full stack identities, which tie together our home address and our phone number, and all this stuff about us, and it lives on some server somewhere. Like, like I, I don't want all that to live on some distributed database. I just don't want that to really exist at all. I want to, I want to make it harder as a human rights activist. I want to make it harder for there to be a centralized, like one stop shop identity. Now I know some people are like, well, we can make that and then we can make it sovereign to you and you can control it. I, I just, I haven't really seen a lot of evidence of that working. So what I would prefer is like when I go to buy something, I shouldn't have to reveal anything about myself. That's why I'm such a fan of this idea of like using lightning for retail payments. Like I want to just beep and like buy something on Amazon or I want to just beep and buy something at a retail store with the ease of Apple Pay or a credit card, but without revealing my gigantic personal identity stack. That to me is super, super important. I also would like to like use things like Twitter and social media again without having to divulge my entire identity. Now, I do think there's like two levels of that because some people are public people and want to be public. So that's like a, a, a thing you take. So my, I'm a public person. So necessarily my Twitter account is going to be linked to my identity. Like I, that's a trade-off somebody's gonna have to make. But if, but if you wanna like develop an anonymous avatar essentially, uh, I don't see why you shouldn't be able to do so. I think that that's like gonna be increasingly important in a free society. Like, and, and the final manifestation of that is something like where, you, where you'd wanna protest and not have anybody know your identity, right? So I'm not so sure about the web three, like we're gonna, we're gonna like take our identity back and we're gonna own it. I'd rather just like break it up and make it as distributed and like in different places as possible. So I'd, I'd rather I'd rather not have this like big fat identity that this digital footprint where somebody can analyze me. I just don't trust that any database that that's going to live in is, is going to be sufficiently decentralized. I just don't think there's any evidence that that that's possible. Alex, a lot of times I've heard you talk about how this kind of technology can either be privacy and sovereignty enabling or can enable the centralized panopticon that China's building and other nations are, are trying to build. Can you talk a little bit about this double-edged sword uh, a little more deeply and kind of talk about the two different directions you see this going? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of 
it's not really a double-edged sword. It's like two different swords. I mean, on one sword, you have, you know, civil liberties and privacy protecting technology. So this would be like Signal or Bitcoin or something like that. On the other hand, you have like, you know, surveillance enabling technology, which would be like, I don't know, any like financial system that integrates with your social media or any public transportation system that integrates with your like national ID card or, you know, any medical thing that links up with your like Apple Watch to to figure out, you know, your heartbeat and everything all the time. So there are these forces and technologies that are like collecting a lot of data for analysis and surveillance. And then there are tools that can help us like fight that. So I, I don't really think it's like two sides of the same sword. I think it's two different swords. Um, and I, I certainly know the one that I want to be uh, holding. So I guess the question would be, where do some of these Ethereum projects fall on that, right? Like what, like what, what have people been able to achieve? And, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the projects that started, you know, were on these like, a lot of the like enterprise stuff, at least, certainly was like highly centralized. And, and unfortunately, a lot of that was going to lead to more ability of, for authorities and governments to, centra- to sort of surveil people, which is, which is kind of unfortunate. So I, I, I kind of find the whole enterprise blockchain thing to be kind of a, a misnomer or like a, a little bit of a paradox, if you see what I'm getting at. Like, I, I, I think that a lot of that stuff where they'll call it a cryptocurrency or whatever, where, where but it's really like on the back end, there's a back door and you can control it. The same for like a huge number of blockchain projects, whether it would be like supply chain or, oh, we're going to put like this land deed on a blockchain or this refugee's information on a blockchain, or we're going to have this federated system that's going to be distributed. I mean, like virtually all that stuff had a single point of failure and a single point of control and it continues to and it's just crazy to watch people burn so much money on it there are very very few actual projects in this space that i think could like actually help people's civil liberties from what i've seen yeah i I would i would totally agree i don't think any of the um identity solutions on ethereum right now are are the solutions that we want to see come out of ethereum um i think that the closest is bloom which is just an attestation uh, app so you link your facebook your twitter your driver's license and then and then you have this collection of things that represent who you are um the most compelling solution or or theory uh, i've heard about decentralized identity came from glenn weil who uh, is one of vitalik's uh, mechanism design buddies who is uh interestingly bearish on blockchains in general but he talks about the whole like social network and and defines identity as a, a network of people that all attest to the identity of of the person in question yeah uh, see the, my, my my problem with that take and i've seen a lot of glenn stuff and, and mm-hmm. I, I got into a disagreement with him once which was fun um Ooh, but, tell me about it well like it's all about like ownership he's like convinced that like you can't own your data in whatever construct and it's like hey man i own my bitcoin it's mine come and take it from me you know is that what he was talking he about? Seems to like not want, he seems to like not want to, he seems like to not want to understand that we at least have one protocol where people can own their stuff. Like you, you can, you can put it in whatever legal parameters you want. If I have the private key to my Bitcoin, I own my Bitcoin. I am the owner. I am the sovereign of that. Right. Right. And I don't care what legal or whatever framework you want to put on top of that. We've achieved that. Now, whether we can achieve that for other things beyond money, not clear not clear if we can have sovereign ownership. Almost anything else requires attestation, right? right? Whether it's, oh, I was born on this day or I, mm-hmm. I weigh this much or whatever. Like 
almost anything else requires attestation. Anything that requires attestation, you know, he's sort of right in like that, that, that that's not going to, you, you can't control, you can't be the owner of that because it requires like to be part of some bigger system, right? But as far as money goes, like somebody created a system where we, you can own your own money and it requires no attestation from, from anybody. Like it's just yours. So that's, I guess, my, my disagreement there. Alex, I've kind of watched a little bit of a transformation on your end from kind of like dipping your toes into the cryptocurrency space and, you know, even saying things uh, about DAI that were positive. And now it seems like you, uh, you really have a lot of uh, appreciation for what Bitcoin is and what it potentially can offer people in terms of civil liberties and ownership of their own funds. Sure. Look, Can you talk a little bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, I think I think you just have to be Bayesian and not ideological. Over time, I've observed things and accumulated evidence and watched projects fail and watched others succeed, and I've adjusted my beliefs accordingly. If you are ideological, that's not going to be possible for you. I think you just want to be Bayesian about it. You want to like take in new information and change your viewpoint accordingly. So whereas a couple years ago, um it did seem possible that some of these projects could work. They had raised hundreds of millions of dollars and seemed to be assembling like really smart teams. And there were like a lot of salty Bitcoiners, right? Saying, nah, this, this stuff's never going to work. But like, I think there was like a moment where like most people were like, okay, well, let's see what, let's see how this goes. That moment has passed. None of those projects did anything. And, and I think that that's just, you just have to put that into your belief system and you have to change your expectations accordingly. As more and more things have been compromised or hijacked or have broken down, I have appreciated the fact that Bitcoin just continues to steamroll ahead. And I, I'm, again, like Bayesian, like collecting evidence. And when you talk to people in the countries that I'm interested in working in, they are using, there's people using Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll be Bayesian too. A couple of years ago, I didn't think I would ever say that like Tether would be useful. But you know what? Tether is useful. Like people use Tether in China to do remittances with their family that go to work in Russia. Okay. So we can like make fun of Tether. We can say maybe it doesn't have the backing it has. I mean, obviously they, they like disclose that. But you know what? It, it, it holds its peg in the eye of the market and people are using it, man, like in a huge way. So in the same way that I've become like really, really pro Bitcoin over time as part of a Bayesian process of understanding and collecting evidence, ditto, I've, I've developed an understanding that like, hey, in this case, people are using Tether and like likewise with DAI, like I was very optimistic about it initially. And then I started to do more research into how it worked and how they would hold the peg and and how it like would be used. And like at the end of the day, these technologies are kind of like. I mean, they're all science experiments. It's just about who's going to use them. And when you go and when you step into the money ring of like money, this stuff's got to be redeemable in order to be useful. So from what I've seen in the stablecoin area, Tether just remains undoubtedly the most useful stablecoin. I don't think anyone could question that based on volume or if you actually go do research and talk to people using it in the field. I just haven't really seen die come out of the scientific phase. Like I just don't. I haven't seen evidence of people actually using it for the like test community. I hope that answers your question. Let me jump in here really quick. And then I know David is going to come to, uh, to correct understandings mm -hmm. about DAI. Sure. I, to me, like uh, between Bitcoin and Tether, what you're saying is that 
when it comes to cryptocurrencies, liquidity is what actually matters. I recently said when it comes to money, liquidity is utility. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, like I think Monero is awesome. But like, let's be frank, like I send my Monero to someone in Zimbabwe, they're going to have a hard time turning that into local currency, right? And therefore, it's like not that useful. We can be fans of different protocols. But like, do they have a single point of failure? Are they censorship resistant? You know, are they private? I mean, these are all kind of cool things we can discuss and debate. But like, at the end of the day, people have to use it for it to be useful, at least for like what I'm doing. I'm not a theoretical person. I'm not like, like a policy theorist person. I'm like literally trying to help people. Okay. So when I sit down and interview 10 activists from 10 different countries and ask them like, what are some of the biggest problems you have today? And they say moving money around, it's hard for me to accept money. The government watches my bank account. Like this is just like a really, really, really important issue or like my currency sucks and, and, and gets devalued by my government or I have trouble moving abroad. You know, there's this, of course, this, this is a funny meme on, on online recently, but like, like Bitcoin kind of fixes this, like it provides an alternative that like these people can actually use relatively easily, you know, and, and they can actually use it. Like I know somebody who she lives in London and there's no way for her to get money to her like dying father-in-law dying in Iran of cancer, but they send Bitcoin and it's easily redeemable in Iran for real and they can pay for the medical treatments. There's no other way to, to do that right now. So um, again, my appreciation over time of Bitcoin has changed in a Bayesian way where I've realized how really amazing it is and how many people are using it. And most other projects, my interest has declined because I, I just have yet to see any evidence of impact. Um, and, but like, again, I'm going to remain Bayesian. And if I see something that like Tether, which is shocking to me because I thought it was like such a scam and a joke. Hey, like if people are using it again, that's going to change my opinion, right? So to circle around back, back to, back to Dai, and you said that Dai is a kind of an experiment, which I, I would agree with. The only corollary I, I would add to that is, is most cryptocurrencies are on the spectrum of product to experiment. And we don't really know at one point they become a product until we look back and say like, oh, that worked out. And it was a product ever since. We had Mariano, Mariano Conti on our podcast uh, twice, actually. And once right after mm -hmm. the Argentine elections where... Um, uh, and he, he, he lives, lives in Argentina, Argentina, Argentina right? And uh, he's paid mm -hmm. he's paid and die from Maker, so he's like you know very close to the source. But he is is a good example of some guy, somebody who is not exposed to the perils of of government fiat money because of of die. And I th and I think that uh, we could definitely say that die is the closest thing to Bitcoin there is in in its sense of that it's permissionless uh, and decentralized in a way that tether isn't so so yes tether is used by a lot of people much more than dai probably most likely that to to my knowledge but at the same point at the same time if we're looking for permanent solutions that uh, should carry us into the future yeah but i don't know if that's true you just said tether's not permission you said you're at, you're you're saying tether's not permissionless and not decentralized correct that's what you're trying to say I don't know if that's in, in doesn't the wild. It have a, doesn't it have like a burn uh, burn and mint model? Can't can't they burn your yeah, tether? Remember, what I'm saying is we need to differentiate between practice and theory. Mm. Um, while that may be true, this is allowing people inside two dictatorships to send tether back and forth without having mm -hmm. to provide their identity. Right. So you know, on a, I, I you know I find that the, the theoretical debates really tiresome. Let's get perfect privacy mm -hmm. in a cryptocurrency. It's impossible. I mean, as soon as you want to turn it into fiat, you're going to get your covers blown. So while I appreciate the like strive for perfect privacy, good enough privacy is that's why they called it pretty good privacy, PGP, right? So like good enough privacy is what we want, right? So and I'm also not sure Eric Wall is someone I, I work with who probably he can dive in a little more on this, but I'm 
I'm pretty sure you can sort of create a, a, a tether wallet that's like very, very permissionless and not attached to your identity. Um, haven't done so myself, but according to him, you can do that. I'm not sure about that. Um, and I, I don't know. You definitely can. I, I don't. I mean, you have, yeah, and you'd have to get a neutral party on this one. But as far as like blacklisting addresses or stuff like that, Dai versus Tether, I'm I'm not so sure there. I don't know how that works. Like if uh, the U.S. government comes to Maker and says, "Hey, we need you to like stop this," I, I, I'm not I'm not so sure. Not theoretically, but practically speaking, that that would. But that's like also what, that's also Maker my concern tomorrow, with Tether, right? Can't they just do the same thing to Tether? Like you can yeah, send but Tether out to Tether anyone, is... but it's up to the Tether uh, company to to not yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, earn look, that look. coin. I, I think my bet. I, I still think Tether is going to be gone in two in two years. Like yeah, I don't think it's okay. going to survive. But right uh, now, it it remains useful. While it while it lives, it remains useful. I happen to think that the way Tether was set up was a lot more. <laughs> how to put this? A um, lot less likely to be shut down by a government just because of the, the the jurisdictions in which they operate is like a lot more shady right than like maker which tends to try to be like very above board and where where it's corporate the stuff is based right mm-hmm. um it just seems more likely that like they would be forced into compliance and look unfortunately you see a lot of this like local bitcoins awesome company is being forced to kyc everybody and it's being forced to betray their principles because they don't want to get arrested you know and and i think that any Unfortunately, even even no matter how decentralized a product is that you create, the creators are 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 going to go under this really difficult knife of like, well, you can either stop or you can go to jail. So that's what happened to local bitcoins, which is which is really sad. I mean, it still remains highly useful because it's just the biggest network effect and it remains the largest peer to peer marketplace for Bitcoin in, in like 100 countries. So it's still like useful. But um, it was really disheartening to see that happen to them. So, I mean, I, I, you know, those are the kind of forces that will happen to a currency which is created and administered by a central party. So, for example, Maker. I mean, that stuff is, is, is a, a real risk, right? Um, but, but I would say, generally speaking, the other thing that I've observed over time that I've become more interested in, and again, Bayesian, like gathered more evidence on this, I think long term, the stable coins are less interesting to me because like they're pegged to something. So they're pegged to a currency. So for short, medium term, great. Pegged to the US dollar. Obviously that's what people want around the world. Long term, I'm not so sure about the US dollar. And that, that, that fuels my interest in Bitcoin. I think, yeah, will there be a product market fit over the next 15 years for a stable coin? Yes, we're watching. I mean, right now Tether is clearly the most used one. I don't, you know, we'll have to see, I, I you know, I, I was, with uh, Nick Carter the other day, and he's telling me Tether's on what five blockchains now? What it's on it's on blockchains that I didn't even think could be useful, but like apparently what Tether's on Tron and EOS and you know what I mean? Like it's 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 becoming harder to kill, is what he was saying. So it's running on not just you know sort of Bitcoin based stuff and Ethereum based stuff, but but like EOS and and Tron and some stuff that I didn't even think was. So I, again, I, I keep changing my mind based on new evidence. But short term, yes, we're going to need stable coins of some kind. People are going to want stable coins at least. But long term, the money piece and the way that governments devalue money and the inevitability of that is what makes me really excited about, about Bitcoin because of its hard cap and because of the inability for the community to print more on demand is just such an interesting aspect of it. Not too many people hear about this, but this was a project made by a 16-year-old, which is absolutely crazy. And Mm -hmm. the the problem is that with organizations like 23andMe, which we send our DNA to, 
but then we also send them our home address and our payment uh, payment provider, and so therefore our bank account. And so in, in one fellow swoop, we send who we are, where our money is, and what our DNA is to this one central honeypot. Yeah, which, no, I mean, it's fucked, man. Yeah, like, it's super fucked. And, you know, the, 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 the riddle here for, like, the, like you know, and, and I still in some ways sympathize with that, like, Web3 dream, right? Like, the riddle would be, or like, the, the sort of um, nut to crack would be, if I'm still doing that, but it's into a database that, like, I seemingly control, is that any better? Like, if I still right. have all my stuff in one place, but rather than living on whatever, so, Azure or Amazon Web Services, it's it's in, like, a distributed encrypted database. No, it's not, At the end not, of the though. day, only, the, it's only better if, if it is indeed distributed and encrypted and, and decentralized. And the problem is, like, I think what I've seen is that a lot of these promising decentralized projects, they end up having to put a layer of centralization between them and the user for, use, for, for people to use it because it's too hard. Um, and this obviously happens in Bitcoin, right? Like most Bitcoiners don't own their own keys, right? Now there's like factors that make Bitcoin still successful and different and interesting even when you don't own your private keys because it, the asset is, is different and parallel to the dollar economy, right? I don't know if the same holds for like stuff like blockchain-based applications that you build on Ethereum because what are they competing against? Centralized stuff, which is faster and better, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is a little bit of an interesting back and forth. Like you can have a partial enjoyment of Bitcoin and, and only, only be partially involved and still reap the benefits and still have something that, 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 that is fundamentally unlike anything else on earth. You can still be interacting with that, right? I don't know if you can say the same thing for the other um, projects in this space, because what they are trying to do is replace something that exists already, which is centralized. And, and there's just no evidence that, that really any of these projects have managed to make something that we do already that's centralized, like better in a decentralized way. So, I mean, look, we might be early, we might be early and maybe in five, 10 years, like, like we'll have like really good examples and, and use cases of decentralized non-monetary systems that are working really well. I just, I don't know. I mean, we saw BitTorrent work really well, right? W- without needing a token or any kind of cryptocurrency, right? And it, w- it constituted what, 40% of all internet traffic or something like that mm-hmm. for some years. And it relied oh. on the altruism of the, of the, sure. of the user. So I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. But that whole area is, is, is very interesting to me. I'm not sold that, that we want to replicate the data architectures of the past and just sort of distribute them uh, is, is sort of a theme of, I guess, what I've been saying. Distributed database. So, there was no, so there's no distributed database in this particular person's project. And, and so the, the identity preserving mechanism was a zero knowledge proof, not, not some sort of distributed database where the data gets uploaded and it's available for everyone to see to the blockchain, but it's encrypted. And the only person that has uh, the access to unencrypt it. Okay. So why would you, I'm on board, man. I'm very, I'm, mm-hmm. like zero knowledge proofs are awesome. And like, right. I think going to be very important for this. And so it's just using Ethereum data. as like a, a, a middleman, but the middleman is the blockchain. Right. And so it, it can say any researcher can access the data, but who, who submitted the, the data to the blockchain and also who received payment for that is also obscure. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not, it's not making a new database. It's just fractionalizing all the data and saying like you can only have access to the DNA data and you don't have access to the Ethereum address that submitted it or who got paid to, to do that. 
And so it's just, it's just fractionalized or, or fracturing everything and separating it. So you, you right. can't, you I can guess only my see question one. would just be like, why do we need a blockchain for that? Can't we, can't we just use a trusted centralized system and still have the zero knowledge proof functionality where this like administrator doesn't know the full identity of, of the person interacting with it. Like, like one of the things right. I, I would like to see is like me being able to interact with Amazon and buy things from them without revealing my identity. So mm-hmm. use lightning to buy stuff. I'm interacting with a completely centralized entity, but it's going to only see a little tiny piece of what I am. Right. So it'd be the same idea. Like you can like interact with a data store or some market or whatever. And it's centralized. You don't even care what its architecture is because you're only giving it a tiny piece of you. Right. So, and if zero knowledge proofs can help that happen, meaning like we don't have too many architectures now where we can interact with things digitally and only give a tiny piece of us. Right. If, if they can, if they can play a role in making that more and more possible for different kinds of data and, and still manage to have some sort of attestation that the third party agrees with, that's going to be very exciting. I just, I'm not so sure that the whole thing needs to be decentralized. That doesn't, doesn't really follow or carry, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, so yeah, these projects are interesting. I don't know why, I don't know if so many, I just don't know if they all need cryptocurrencies and I don't know if they all need to be on a blockchain, I guess is what I'm saying. Alex, while we're kind of on this, uh, Matt Odell came on the podcast and him and David uh-huh. didn't quite see eye to eye of, you know, the potential <laughs> threat of governments being to uh-huh. down or, or interfere with, uh, you know, the freedom that cryptocurrencies uh, enable or censorship resistance. Can you kind of jump a little bit into, like, are you afraid that the U.S. government is going to try to shut down a Bitcoin or Ethereum or try to KYC miners or node operators and anything? I mean, I'm not afraid, man. I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, this is, my career is not like invested in one of these cryptocurrencies. So I have no fear here. I'm just like an advocate. I'm, I'm curious. I'm interested. I'm following. I'm like, I want to see what happens. I'm very excited. It's very exciting. I hope that the U.S. government realizes that as an open society, it would stand a lot more to gain from allowing like innovation in this space rather than come in and in a heavy handed way regulate it. I think that that's like not the way to be a leading government in the future. Um, I think in the future, governments that are more accountable to their people, more flexible, more catering to their citizens needs are going to be the successful ones. People are going to increasingly be able to get their wealth out of whatever society they're in. So if you live under some shitty government that's like very oppressive, you're just going to just going to get your wealth out and get out of there and go somewhere else. Open societies that that have these functions already, like representative democracy and, and a good court system and private property, these are going to be the ones people want to flock to, um, not not like dictatorships. So America could still be like very, very, very appealing. Uh, of course, it is today for for most people and. I think it can remain so even in a Bitcoin based future, you know, but, you know, for that to happen, it has to be kind of like somewhat friendly or maybe not friendly, but like, you know, making possession of Bitcoin illegal would be like a really dumb thing for them to do. And I would argue very un-American. Um, but, but we'll see. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's something that most governments do in the next 10 years. Governments are dumb. I mean, look what they did with the, um, marijuana in America. You know, had we just how many people's lives would have been saved if. They just didn't make marijuana illegal in, you know, whatever, 100 years ago, close to 100 years ago. I mean, how many people are in our prison system now? This prison system, this industrial prison system that is just like a stain on America's history and a stain on the idea and image and dream of America. I mean, so much of this thing wouldn't exist if people weren't in jail for nonviolent drug crimes, you know. 
So the government did a really dumb thing. It was pressured by companies to, to outlaw uh, marijuana and trade this what ended up being massive black market, right? So yeah, like they could go ahead and ban Bitcoin and that would be really dumb and there'd be this like massive black market for it and there'd probably be a lot more crime and violence and terrorism and God knows what. Um, so just don't do that would be like my hope. And that's why Coin Center is so important as an organization so it can like help the US government realize that it's like not a great idea to be banning this stuff. But um, I don't know, it, that could that could totally happen. What was the, what was the David M Matt thing? Like what did, did Matt, did Matt, does Matt think the U.S. government's going to ban Bitcoin or what? Yeah, I mean, so David. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, that's that's his like biggest fear, and he thinks that that Bitcoin okay. is in a race to get into a technologically secure position to where that. I that see. Yeah, 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 yeah. And your what did your take is that that's you're you're not worried. You're not as worried. Not at all. Not in the slightest. I okay. Well, that. obviously. Look, there's like, I think we just wrote the book on the, you know, getting back to the book, we, we, there's a chapter, there's a Q&A section. And one of the questions we answered was sort of like, is Bitcoin legal? And we had to do a lot of research. And it turns out there's like seven countries where Bitcoin is technically illegal, uh, or like the use of it or ownership of it. Now, that's not obviously, as, you all, as we all know, that's not enforceable. Like, it, 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 it doesn't. So Bolivia is one of the countries I know a Bolivian. People use Bitcoin in Bolivia. Like, it, it's not like helpful to ban Bitcoin. But some countries have done it. They don't really understand. Other countries like China, like have banned the trading of it or have banned turning it into fiat or using renminbi to, to buy Bitcoin, things like that. The Indian government similar. But in China, like Bitcoin is it legally protected as property, as a digital piece of property. Right. So so these these things may change over time. But it was interesting to see that, like, even in the world's biggest police state, there are legal protections for Bitcoin. Like if I steal your Bitcoin somehow, um, then like I go to jail. Right. So. Very, very interesting, right? I, I would, I would fall somewhere between the two of you. I, I'm, I'm certainly not like, not worried. Like, I think a headstrong government such as the one we have now in America could easily make a decision like that. And at the same time, I'm not as worried as Matt. Like, I, I, I don't, th I, like, I, I think there's just at the end of the day, like, not a whole lot governments can do. But I guess we'll see. Awesome. Well, I think to wrap it up, would love to hear a little bit more about the little Bitcoin book. Yeah. So the point was that like when I started learning about blockchain and cryptocurrency, the, it was just that the education space is a disaster. Like you, you, you Google it. These like videos are so confusing. They're, they all conflate. They all teach about this thing that doesn't exist, which is like you'll take a course on cryptocurrency. There's no such thing as cryptocurrency. Each cryptocurrency is very different in the way that it behaves and who, and, and the, who controls it and how, how, where does its value come from, et cetera. Ditto like blockchain. Like, like, so what happens is you learn about blockchain as this like super exciting thing. But in reality, like what is usually being described when you watch one of these like Harvard or whatever videos on YouTube and it's, it's like it's describing Bitcoin, but it's calling it blockchain, blockchain technology. And then they may even add some other attributes that Bitcoin doesn't have. And you've got this like mythical chimera of a beast of blockchain. And, and then it's, yeah, it's like really exciting because you're like, oh my God, this is so cool. Blockchain is going to change the world. But it's not, it's not describing anything that actually exists. These, these educational videos and courses and books and just books upon books. So, and I lost a lot of time. I lost like six months at least of my life, like because there was no, straightforward entry point 
I was only saved because of Andrea, Andreas Antonopoulos' stuff, which was so good and helped like get me on the right track. But really, there's just so much crap out there. He tells a really funny story in one of his talks about he met this like kid in Singapore and the kid's like, yeah, I work for like, I think it was like Bank, Bank of America or something like that. And, uh, you know, I've been working in the blockchain space, you know, distributed ledger technology and stuff like that. And like Mr. Antonopoulos, like, I just heard, I just learned about this thing called Bitcoin. Like, what is it? And, and I thought this was really funny, but also like totally possible, totally realistic, because you could like be in blockchain for like months without even even hearing about Bitcoin or understanding what it is, which I think is like a cosmic irony. The space is just littered with problems and it's confusing and there's conflation. And I, I wanted to help put a book out there that can like teach people about why there are problems with money today why whoever created Bitcoin did it like ideologically, like why did they do it? Like what were they trying to address? And then how does it address that? Like technically without getting too much into the technical details, sort of how does it work? What kind of concepts do you need to understand to, to learn about why Bitcoin's valuable? Why is it volatile? Why does the price go up and down? Everybody always asks that. And then how does it have implications for human rights and freedom? We cover that. And then we kind of have like a future looking chapter and like a big Q and A to address all the burning questions. So we did this in a week long session with eight authors. I was one of eight authors from many different industries and backgrounds. Some of us are very involved, other cryptocurrency projects, others are just Bitcoin focused. Um, but we all come from different parts of the world. There's someone from the former Soviet Union, someone from Venezuela, someone from Nigeria, someone from the Philippines, someone who's done a lot of work in China. So there's like a lot of different experience and expertise. There's executives, educators, activists, previous authors, people who went to Y Combinator, um, people who've done a lot of writing, people who didn't do a lot of writing. It, it was a very diverse group, but we all had this like desire to write this book. The Little Bitcoin book is an output of that. And I think it's just hopefully essential reading for any like pre-coiner who may um, get involved with Bitcoin later. Um, it's a really good first step. And I wish I had had it like when I was first learning about, about the space. So you can get it on Kindle or paperback on Amazon today, the little Bitcoin book. Very cool. And Alex, if they just want to follow you directly, are you on Twitter? Yeah, my last name, Gladstein, G-L-A-D-S-T-E-A-N. And if you want to follow the work of the Human Rights Foundation, it's H-R-F. Uh, I lecture for Singularity University, so I believe there's Singularity U. Alex, I'll definitely be seeing you soon at uh, one of the Bitcoin dinners or something along those lines. In terms of uh, in terms of your book, I actually bought it for my girlfriend, and I kind of described it to her, and she's like, "Oh, I'm stoked! I want to read this." So I'm, uh -huh. I'm excited. I, I'm like 50 pages in, but you do do a very good job of really like breaking down from a freedom perspective and from a human rights perspective why this is important and what the you know what could go wrong theoretically i highly recommend it from what i've seen so far and i'm excited yeah what what, what did go wrong already for so many people that's true it's not that's i guess true. the point of the book and important point why i'm on here is that this isn't theoretical guys like some orwellian surveillance state is not some black mirror situation that could happen i mean it's already here for billions of people. So we got to fight back. Absolutely. Fight back. Listen to Alex Gladstein. Follow the man. Follow POV Crypto. And you can follow me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks as well. David? You can follow me at Trustless State both on Twitter and on Medium. Thanks, Alex. Rock on. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you having me on.